Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. We are currently in stage two of our COVID-19 response where the church building is open for you to join us in person for worship. However, we will continue to broadcast the service live at 10 a.m. each week. Now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning. We're, I'm just glad to be here with you this morning. That really was a wonderful time of worship. Thank you, Scott, Rocky, and the entire praise team. And it was just, just amazing, wasn't it? Isn't it good to be back together? Yes, those of you who are joining us, isn't it good to be back? Yes, I think so. Well, so we're, this morning we're continuing our series called Let's Talk About Sex. Again, if you have young people in the room or where you're watching in the room, you may want to put the TV on in the next room for them. And just to give you a heads up, this series was originally designed for, uh, originally we thought we were going to talk about this for about three weeks, uh, but now it's turning into more like five weeks. Because uh, the more I've dug into this topic, the more I realized we need to talk about uh, please continue to pray for me. Please continue to pray for others as we, we talk about these things because some of them are difficult, some of them are challenging, but, but you know, we just got to follow the Lord's leading and, and we'll go ahead and commit to that above all other things, following his leading and just see where he takes us. Uh, this week, I was originally going to talk about sexual immorality. Like everybody was excited about that, right? Like, come on, let's preach it, brother. Yeah, it's one of those topics. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized I said, you know, maybe we need a pause on that. Because as I watched news headlines and some things going on in the news, I realized, you know, when I start talking about these topics, how are people going to hear what I'm saying? I mean, because the church hasn't always been on the right side of dealing with these issues. You see, here, here's what happened. You Liberty University, anybody ever heard of them? Yeah, they've been in the spotlight recently. Anybody seen that? Yeah, most of us have. Okay, so Liberty has been in the spotlight and, well, really not the school itself, but, well, the former president, right? Just Let's just call it a sex scandal to say the least. And it made national headlines and he resigned and, of course, has put just this massive negative press on the school and, and kind of him and his family and kind of all of that. And, and if, if you think about it, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like, well, well, really, why is it a big deal? I mean, as far as leadership goes, because remember, he's not a pastor. He's the president of a college. And when you think about it, you see it's, it's un, undeniable of how good he did as a leader. He took a school who was massively in debt, now has $2.8 billion in assets. Like 10 years. That's not too bad, is it? Massively in debt to $2.8 billion. It went from a small school with small programs to one of our country's largest school. In fact, the world's largest Christian university. Going from a small school to the world's largest Christian. That's not too bad, is it? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So as far as leadership goes, it seems like he did a pretty good deal. And as far as sex scandals go, and by the way, he made a million dollars a year. That's not like a bad salary, is it? So evidently, they thought he was doing all right. But as far as sex scandals go, if you look at the, the world, I mean, you remember 2016, where uh, the candidates were talking and you heard all about potential candidate sex scandals. Y'all remember that? Yet still won the office. You remember in Two, what is it, 1998, the president at the time got involved in a pretty big public sex scandal and yet still remained president. 
And I thought it was interesting. I said, well, the president of the United States can be, well, involved in one and still be the president. You have uh, the president who was running for election in 2016 was accused of, of a couple of different things and yet still won presidency. So the president of our country, when they're involved, it's like, ah, but the president of a college? So that seems, seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Why has one guy got to resign or he gets fired and the rest, it's still okay? Well, you probably know why. It's because Liberty University has a very strict moral code. Very strict. Now, it's been lenient over the years, and I guess we, we never mind. Sorry, I <laughs> almost made some comments I shouldn't make. But it's been, it's been relaxed over the past couple of years. But in 2014, you could get fined at Liberty for holding hands. Ten bucks. That's pretty strict, isn't it? Yeah, and so when... And the, the faculty had pretty strict codes. The rest of the, 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 the students, they had strict codes. And so when you have these massively strict codes on people, well, you're setting yourself up to fall and fall pretty hard. You see, the problem, while he wasn't a pastor, the issue stems from more of the stance they take, more of the stance the church he's associated with, uh, his father's former church kind of takes. And I'm not speaking for them. I'm just saying the common general understanding of, of this certain flavor goes something like this. When it thinks of se sexual morality, they talk about it like it's a sin and we've never done it before. Right, sexual morality is a sin and the way they communicate, it's like we've, we've never had those issues and you should never have those issues. And I think that's a great stance, right? Sexual morality is a sin. You should never do it. And I've never done it either. But it doesn't seem to work too well in real life. Because it seems like people who take that stance, they end up getting caught up in it all the time. And when they fall, people are very unforgiving towards them, aren't they? That's kind of what happened with him. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, well, what other stances or what other ways do churches communicate this kind of stuff? Again, because remember, I'm wondering how you're going to hear me talk about it. So, so you may hear me through that lens. Or you may hear me through the lens of, well, how about this? Some churches take the stance like, let's not talk about it. This is my friend's church. This is a true story. My friend's, took, my friend's church took this approach, and, and maybe we're used to it here. It's like, let's just not talk about those issues. Let's just pretend they don't exist. We don't talk about them. Nobody talks about them. Everything just works out great. It seemed to work out fine for them until the children's minister got caught having an affair on her husband with the church's security guard. And that was brought to the leadership and they were like, uh, well, can we just pretend it doesn't exist? They're like, no, everybody knows now. But what do we do? I mean, we've never talked about it. So since we don't talk about it, we know what to do in the situations. And can we just pretend? And they were just in this weird mess. And just to let you know, it didn't turn out good for the church. Or we have some, they, they, they talk about it through like, well, there's really no sexual sins, right? Like, well, maybe the Bible doesn't really talk about it. And that sounds good. Like we can just say, hey, there are no sexual sins. Just do what you want. It sounds great until you actually read the Bible. And then you come in a problem. And, and I've actually seen modern people or modern pastors or modern people who want the Bible to say something it doesn't. They end up saying, well, the, when the Bible talks about sexual morality and these certain types of sins, it doesn't really mean that back then. We've translated and we're making it something, but back then it didn't mean that. I just, I chuckle when I hear it. Here's why. Because the Bible is pretty interesting. It's been around for 2,000 years. Okay? 
2,000 years the letters, now give or take, combined about 1,700 years. Millions of scholars have went through this. When somebody tells you they found something new, after 2,000 years and millions of scholars, you may wanna be a little skeptical. You know what I mean? Like, oh, 2,000 years later, you have found something new. Get a little skeptical about it. The bigger problem is when we start diminishing some sins, we end up diminishing all the ones we don't like. And which ones don't we like? Well, the ones we do, right? We don't want anybody to tell us those are wrong. And so we can end up just saying, well, sin's not a big deal and there really is no sin. And when we do that, well, we end up just diminishing Jesus altogether. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then we have the let's be welcoming approach. It sounds good. It ends up being a mixture of the last two approaches. The let's be welcoming is let's, uh, they say common things like, well, we want all people to be welcomed. It's like, man, me too, that's great. Like, no, what I mean is we want all people to be welcomed and let's not talk about anything that ever offends anybody. I'm like, yeah, but, but have you seen the 21st century? We can't talk about nothing. Then they're like, yeah, that's fine. Let's just be welcoming. Let's not offend people. Let's just be nice. And I understand what they're saying. What they're trying to do is they're trying to overcompensate for when the churches took the stance of, well, I've never done it. Nobody should ever do it. So shame on you type. And so they come all the way over there like, well, let's just make sure we don't offend. Let's make sure we don't hurt people. It comes from empathy. I kind of think like, well, if people are struggling with, they should be a part of the church. And I agree, but let's, let's keep going because I don't think that works either because it's okay if the Bible offends people. It is. So I have a better approach. We'll call it this. We'll call it the right way. Does that sound too arrogant? Yeah, it does. Okay, so let's not call it the right way. Let's call it this. Let's call it the Jesus way. Can we call it the right way the Jesus way? I know, it sounds too arrogant. So we'll just call it the Jesus way. And we'll look at how he handles these things. And what I want us to do before we dive into sexual morality, don't worry, we'll talk about that next week. I know you're excited about it. Before we do that, let's kind of understand how we should handle that topic. What our posture should be to people who are in it. So when I talk about it, hopefully hear me through this lens we're gonna talk about today. Here's what Jesus teaches us. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John chapter eight. If not, it'll be right here on this amazing TV or on the screen for you to, to, to see back here. It says this, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. If I were to start sitting when I teach, how upset would you be? Like, Brian, you can't teach. Preacher's supposed to stand up. I'm just letting you know, Jesus sat down. Do you see that? It's a Jesus thing to do, to sit down when you teach. Just reminding you. Okay, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Y'all heard this story before? Well, good. So religious leaders brought this, this woman who like literally got caught in adultery. Like they, they saw her, they watched it. They, they saw this lady committing adultery. And so they come publicly in front of everybody. Jesus is in a very public place at this point. Publicly bring her in front of everybody. Oh, it says this, look at verse three. Second part. It says, they made her stand before the group. How embarrassing would that be? You know, they say like 85% of people, their greatest fear is like public speaking. Imagine being literally caught in adultery, probably closed off, right? You get the point. And then drugged publicly before a bunch of people and your Sunday school teachers say this about you and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
All right, it's not embarrassing enough. Keep going. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Hey, Jesus, we're supposed to kill her, right? How do you think she feels at that time? Yeah, can you imagine? Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And this, there's just so many obvious issues with the story. Like, number one, where's the woman? Oh, where's the man? I mean, they're right. The law of Moses did say that adulterers should be punished, but both of them. Man's not there, just a woman. In fact, scholars say there's little evidence that in the first century, this type of punishment was still carried out, especially in urban areas. And as John mentions, what they're trying to do is they're trying to what? Trap Jesus. And just let you know, it never works out for the people who try to do this. Never. Just don't, don't try it, but never works out. And here's what they're trying to tra trap them with. Something that still today, I promise you, still today we're confused. We get very confused on how these things work. And it just so happens Jesus teaches us. Here's what they're trying to trap them with. They're asking Jesus, do we do mercy or judgment? Which one? Do we show mercy or do we give judgment, Jesus? They say, either way, we got him. They schemed this up. They said, either way, we got him. He cannot get out of this. Because if Jesus rejected the law of Moses, what, what the Old Testament said, we'd lose his credibility as a rabbi. Rabbis are supposed to uphold the law. Rabbis are supposed to teach the law. So they say, oh, we got him. We bring him before and he says, disregard. Everybody's going to discredit everything he's ever said. It's kind of the equivalent of a preacher saying, I don't believe in the Bible and I don't need to teach from it. Everything else I've done would be discredited. You'd be like, well, what, what do you, what do you teach? Is this just your thoughts? We're not interested in that, Brian. Right, it's the basis is the Bible. When Jesus is a rabbi, the basis would have been the Bible. So he said, we got him. If he disregards the Bible, however, if he showed judgment, said, bring her down, like let's, let's follow exactly what Moses says, then he'd be supporting an unpopular view. And you're like, well, that's not big of a deal. You're right, it's not that big. I mean, we should support unpopular views. But killing somebody in public? It's like a little too far, isn't it? I mean, this isn't something good. And plus, Jesus has had this teaching of forgiveness and redemption. And he seems to, to care for the outcast. So since he's been doing that, not, it's like if he says, don't worry about the law, then we can't trust anything he says. If he says judgment, then, well, he can't. Because remember, who is the only people who can kill people back then? Fast forward a little bit, when they take Jesus to crucify him, who do they got to take him in front of? Rome. Ooh, so we're like, if he says judgment, we'll tell Rome he's trying to kill people. If he doesn't, we'll say he's blasphemy, he doesn't believe in the Bible. They're like, we got him. But let's be honest, aren't, don't we still get confused about how to deal with mercy or judgment? We act like they're opposing principles that surely you can't have both and surely people can't operate in both fears and, and many people in many churches are set up as they're opposing. So we'll just be extremely judgmental or we'll be extremely liberating. But there's something else we can do. There's another way to handle it. And this is where ministry gets messy. And amazingly, do you know it's been in your Bible this whole time? Right here, John chapter eight. Mercy or judgment, Jesus? 
Look at this. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. What do you think he was writing? You want to know my opinion? I think he was doodling. I think that when people come to ask him silly questions, he's just like, oh my goodness, let me just draw something. And he's just doodling, just trying to ignore them. Don't you feel like doodling sometimes when people start talking to you? You're like, are you serious? Maybe that's just how pastors feel. I don't know. But I just start doodling like, oh man, here we go again. I think he's doodling. Verse seven. But when they kept questioning him, they're provoking him, aren't they? Please pay attention. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Remember, they forced this question upon Jesus. And this is very important to see. And I'm gonna go on a little tangent for a minute. But they're not interested in the truth. They're trying to provoke and they're trying to trap. And on a side note, our culture today is still doing this to the church. All, all culture today is still trying to trap the church where I believe, you know, listen, I'm not gonna lie. Some churches are out there looking for fights and they usually have banners and they usually go around protesting and they make the news. You, you see that pretty obvious. But most churches aren't looking for that. But when a church is provoked, when, when people ask a church a series of questions, when a church, when people try to push the church, the church has to respond, don't they? Doesn't mean they necessarily wanna be in the spotlight. It just means that sometimes people try to trap or keep questioning and a church has to respond. So Jesus answers their questions. He stood up. He quit doodling and he said, okay, well, the first of you without sin, go ahead and do it. Now here's the beauty of what's going on. You see the law stated, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament stated that whoever caught the woman in the act had to be the first one to start the stoning. Basically, back then, you couldn't bring someone before a bunch of other people, said they sinned, and they said, I wipe my hands clean. I have nothing to do with it. They said, oh, no, if you're going to bring them before, you're going to be the first one to throw the stone. I mean, it kind of makes you think twice before you bring somebody, you know, you, you bring someone before. Like, you got to be serious about what they did. And so Jesus says, okay, if you want to do it, go for it. It's the first one of you who hasn't sinned, do it. Now, According to scholars and heavyweight scholars, people like D.A. Carson, if you don't know who that is, that's okay. But that's like a big heavyweight scholar. They say Jesus wasn't speaking about sinless perfection. Because it'd be impossible. Jesus is more than likely referring to people who don't have these types of sins. Another scholar says this, it's a good quote. He says this, this does not mean that this woman's accusers must be sinless or morally perfect in order to bring charges against the woman. In such case, accusations would be impossible at any time. But then the accusers must engage in self-examination. Now that's what we don't like, right? Where I gotta look at me first before I look at you. That's no fun. Keep going. It says, the world of antiquity was little different from our own when it came to sexual sins. Women's who women who transgress social mores could find themselves in legal jeopardy much more quickly than their partners. Jesus may thus be cutting through the double standard in order to force the men to reflect on their own hypocrisy. And this is where it gets like serious pretty quick. Because what's going on is Jesus is calling out the double standard. He's calling out the fact that a woman is there, but the man is not there. 
He's showing them how they're so quickly to hold other people accountable, but haven't first looked at themselves. And if we're honest, we're not so different today, are we? You don't have to admit to that, but think about it. Women are held to a higher standard or looked at differently when it comes to sexual sins. They say, well, it's just boys being boys. It's okay. It's not a big deal. All right, if a man has a lot of sexual partners to his other male friends, listen, I can't speak for you women. I'm not even going to try. But for men, you know those guys, you know when you're younger, those guys who had a lot of sexual partners, they were your heroes. You thought, wow, look at them. But if a woman does it, well, she's a, yeah. And for clarity, men, you aren't somehow off the hook in God's eyes for sexual sins, just to make sure you know that. And in our culture, in our churches especially, heterosexual sins are not as bad as homosexual sins. It's as if sin is like horseshoes and whoever's the closest to not doing it but still doing it is off the hook. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. But if somebody's living with somebody, we're like, well, oh, but did you hear about their kid? Ooh, they may be. Right, why, why is that? Why is our church okay with heterosexual sins, but homosexual sins are so much worse? Why is that? Double standard. We're hypocrites. And that's what Jesus is cutting to here. He's calling them out for the hypocrisy. Don't have a double standard. It's not okay. And we'll go further into that next week. And don't worry, I promise I will offend everybody, right? We'll have equal opportunity to be offended next week. But they want to call out this woman and ignore what they're doing. Even ignore what the man did. The problem is they're not even willing to acknowledge their own junk, what they're going through, what they've done. And again, verse eight, it says, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and at this, though who, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. So he says it. Those of you without sin, those of you without sexual sin, you do it first. It goes back to drawing. Maybe he was just listing out sin. I'm not too sure what he was doing. We can get imaginative with it. But regardless, he said what he needed to say, and the people started walking away. And for this woman, can you imagine how she feels? Publicly humiliated, publicly shamed, and they want to kill her in front of absolutely everybody. Can you imagine like the death sentence standing right before you? And then Jesus says something like that and everybody starts walking away. How would you feel? Verse 10, Jesus straightened up. And asked her, woman, where are they? They left. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Ah, the beauty she's left with the only perfect one. The one who can really truly look and say, now I can pronounce judgment. And he doesn't ask if she's guilty. Why? Because she already, he already knows she is. Her question of guilt isn't on the table. He says, is there anybody here to condemn you to this death? She said, no. 
He said, I don't condemn you either. And this is the part we love. This is the part we look at. Look, Jesus is so nice and accepting and loving, but it's not the end of the story. Because he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Here it is. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of. You mean Jesus said there was sin? Yes. What did he say to do with it? Leave. Yeah, but he said he didn't condemn her. He said, yeah, he's not going to kill her for it. But he never said it was okay. He never said it wasn't a big deal. He never said, oh, I know how you feel. I know your upbringing. It's really not your fault. It's really your mama's fault. Come on. We blame our mamas for everything, don't we? Our dads. You ever wonder what your kids are going to say about you? I do. Anyways, moving on. We'll talk about that a different day. But Jesus said, no, no, it's not about your background. It's not about where you've been. It's not about whose fault it is. It's none of that stuff. It's not about how you feel. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Get out of it. You see, one scholar says this. He says, the story's crisp ending captures the seriousness. The seriousness with which Jesus views sin and judgment. Look at this, because this is the part we kind of miss. Even the sins of those who accuse the woman. We focus on the woman, but we forget about the hypocrites who've already left. When Jesus deals with sins, he deals with everybody's junk. Everybody's. With the, even the sins of those who accuse the woman and his gracious, forgiving outlook on those who are caught in its grip. Notice the attitude and how they respond. To those who are judgmental, those who wanna point out and not look inward, they just wanna throw other people in, Jesus quickly responds, look at your life. It doesn't ever end well for people like that. Jesus's response is always conditional on how the people come to him. When they come to him with trying to catch him, they come to him trying to diminish that he is God, when we try to trap him, we try to dismiss what he has to say, he doesn't talk politely as if it's okay for you to disrespect the one who created it all. But those who come to him broken and hurting and humble, oh, forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. Jesus' response is conditional on how you come to him. Always read your Bible, always. The brokenhearted usually enjoy him. The prideful and arrogant do not, do not at all. You see, one group walked away mad. The brokenhearted says, I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus has both. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't say it's okay. He says, leave it. So the posture Jesus takes is simple. You know this, come as you are but you can't stay there, all right? Come as you are, come on, you're messed up. No problem, come on. Oh, but we're not gonna let you stay in that mess. No, but I wanna stay in the mess. That's not an option. No, but it's comfortable. Doesn't seem to be worried about that. Come exactly how you are, but you can't stay there. You see, there's two ways to respond to Jesus. You can come to him, Receive his forgiveness, receive his mercy, or you can walk away mad at how he's told you to look inside. 
You see, in this story, one group walked away mad because they wouldn't look at their own hypocritical sin. They came to Jesus. He pointed out their sin. What'd they do? They left. Another woman whose sin was exposed received grace and forgiveness from the Lord of all. Do you see that? It's our attitude. And sin is complicated. But those are the choices we're faced with. We can acknowledge, we can take an inward look and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. (laughs) I absolutely am. And we can come to Jesus and receive his mercy and grace and allow him to help us through that mess. Or we could come in our pride and arrogance and say, well, I don't sin and I don't need you. And his response isn't going to be so loving and kind. But those are the two choices all of us are faced with. And I know sin is complicated and I know sexual sin is extremely complicated. I know it's difficult. I know we're talking about your personal life, those deep, dark secrets that your wife, that your husband, that nobody else knows. I mean, I know we're like getting all in your business. So we're talking about your kids and we're talking about your grandkids. I completely understand this is complicated. This is tough to deal with. But what I hope you see and what we have to be clear about is that every single person in this world struggles or has been tempted with sexual sin. All of us, every human. We're gonna really see that next week. I'll give you a little foreshadow for next week. Everybody deals with it or is dealing with it or has dealt with it. We have to see past the double standard. And what I'm trying to say, I'm just going to say it. It works so much better when I'm direct, doesn't it? What I'm trying to say is heterosexuals are just as guilty of sexual sin. And as a church, we've had this double standard. We're heterosexual, it's not that bad. What about these guys? No, no. All of it we need to deal with. All of it's a problem. None of it's okay. And men staring holes through women's yoga pants is a sin. Do you understand all of it we need to deal with? We don't just need to pick on a group. This is a common human problem, like a big deal. And I want you to see, we'll deal with that more next week. Now we're all on cover. It's okay. Next week, come back. I promise. It'll be a great sermon. Bring popcorn. We'll have a lot of fun. But I want you to see the beauty of what Jesus is doing because we can so easily miss what's going on. We can so easily miss the beauty of this story because I need you to see this story starts with with this woman being in the crosshairs of the religious elite. It starts with them wanting to kill her. In chapter 8, read it for yourself. They want to kill this woman. Jesus speaks up. Do you know how chapter 8 ends? Look at this. It ends like this. Verse 8. I mean, excuse me, verse 59. It says that this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, I skipped a story. You can go back and read it. But listen, Jesus saved this woman from stoning and puts himself in the middle of the crosshairs of their attack. They are out for blood. They're trying to trap him. He saved her, but by saving her, he put himself right in the middle of the conflict. Do you see that? This broken sinner comes and Jesus jumps in the middle of it. He picks a fight to save her. 
He puts himself on the crosshairs of it. And oh, it's just so amazing because in her broken, fragile state, Jesus steps up. I mean, he's stepping up for a woman in adultery thousands of years ago. And if you didn't know, women weren't looked at very good back then. But Jesus is standing up for the one that absolutely nobody else would have stood up for. He stands up to take her place, to put himself right in the middle of it. Do you not see the beauty of Jesus? Do you not see what John is saying? Look, look, look. I'm going to give you some foreshadowing. Look, here's what's going to come. He's willing to stand in the middle of your mess. He's willing to take on the punishment that you deserve. You see, Jesus could forgive her. Jesus could point to what's coming because of what he did on the cross. How he stood in the crosshairs of death. He stood in the crosshairs of the wrath of God, of the punishment, of the guilt that we deserve. He stood up for her and he stood up for us by dying for us. When you hear Jesus say, leave your life of sin, hear him say it as the man who stood in the punishment of it. The man who said, no, leave. I've already, I've already paid for it. I've already suffered for it. Why are you still staying in it? You see, Jesus wants to set you free. And this is where it gets so interesting, the story, because it's the religious people who wanted to ignore Jesus. It's the religious elite, the people who are supposed to know the Bible, supposed to love them. They wanted to stay in their sin. They didn't want to receive Jesus. They didn't want to hear his thoughts about hypocrisy and double standards. They walked away from him, end up trying to kill him, which needs to remind us that there still are people today in the church, unfortunately, who say it's okay to stay in your sin. To which Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not okay. Because he died for it. He wants to set you free from it. Jesus has provided a way for you to be free. And all of this brings us to where we have to be on issues like this. It's come as you are, but you can't stay there. Come as messed up as you are. Be all right, but you can't stay there. You see, all churches should be filled with people who can explain this to other people. Come as you are but you can't stay. Come as a horrible husband. Don't nudge your husband, okay? Come as a horrible wife. Come as a horrible father. Come as a horrible mother, but you can't stay there. Come as a bad employee. Come as a horrible employer, but you can't stay there. You can be as greedy as you want to be or as selfish in it for you as you want but you can't stay there. You can come living with your spouse, watching pornography and lust and come, but you can't stay there. You gotta get out of it because Christ has set you free. There is no sin greater than Jesus Christ. There is no sin more powerful than the cross. And that must be the church's stance. Come as you are, but you can't stay there because the church should be full of life change. You see, one of the most dysfunctional churches you've ever heard of before in your life had a group of people who could speak to life change. The church in Corinth, 
You're like, Brian, what church are you about to talk to? Don't step on my toes. Corinth, it's in the Bible. You should read it. I mean, this church was so messed up. Here's how messed up they were. I think we would probably all agree this is pretty messed up. A guy was sleeping with a stepmom. And they weren't sure if it was okay or not. Like, would we agree? Or we, we're like, okay, that, yeah, Paul, when he writes, he's like, even the pagans wouldn't let this happen, guys. What are you doing? Paul's like, that is horrible. But we'll look at, look at what he says to him. 1 Corinthians 9, 11. It's gonna be uncomfortable for a minute. Don't worry. It says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like, Paul, I didn't know. What are you gonna tell you? He said, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody said, uh-oh. I've probably done something on there. And I'm not picking on sin. We're just talking about sexual morality. So I highlighted the sexual morality, but they're all there. We write them, okay? But that's just what we're talking about. He says, however, look at this. And he's not done. And that is what some of you were. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. We're probably gonna have to do a sermon series. I'm not too sure if we're familiar with sanctified and justified. They're a pretty big deal. You should Google them. Google that. It's really good. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Christ can set you free. Paul made this church that was so dysfunctional. This church was still welcoming. And as hard as Paul's writings can be, Paul created an environment at a church where people who were sexual and pure were honest about it. Adulterers, same-sex thieves, greedy people, drunks, slanderers, swindlers, idolaters were all welcome, but they left it behind because of Jesus Christ. That's what some of you were, meaning they had life changed, they experienced, they had testaments. Yeah, that's who I was, but that's not who I am now. That's what I did, but that's not what I'm doing now. You see, because of Jesus Christ, there should be something changed about you. You should experience life change. And one scholar writes this, he says in Paul, he said, Paul is not writing in merely liter, uh, literary or in imaginary terms, but addressing the greatness of miracles. Church, how powerful do we believe Jesus Christ is? Hmm. But addressing the greatness of miracles, a church of redeemed sinners, one from their former old lifestyle by the power of God. We cannot expect people to be clean before they come to Christ. It's impossible. We can't expect people to be clean as soon as they come to Christ. It's going to be messy. In fact, you might get your suit a little bit messy dealing with people in sin. But it's okay. Our church should be full of life change. A church where they weren't sure if a guy sleeping with his stepmom was okay was full of life change. That's the power of Jesus Christ. We might not have it all figured out, we might not know all the answers, but boy, have we experienced the power of Jesus Christ. It's messy, but people are worth it. And God is still in the business of redeeming. Come as you are, but you can't stay there. You see, if we diminish sin, we diminish the need for Jesus. Okay? If we diminish Jesus, we diminish the cross. 
If we diminish the cross, we diminish forgiveness. If we diminish forgiveness, we diminish the power of God to set them free. We don't talk about sin because we're happy that people are in it. We're just honest about the reality of life. But we have to talk about it because Jesus and the cross and forgiveness and setting them free, we believe is a really big deal. And if we're not talking about those things, what in the world are we doing as a church? I mean, there's plenty of country clubs. There's plenty of clubs here. It's full of retirement. I mean, they have all sorts of clubs here, don't they? All sorts of things you can be a part of. That's not what the church is about. And sin, listen, sin is uncomfortable to deal with. It's, it was radically uncomfortable for Jesus to deal with, wasn't it? Hanging on a cross, I'm pretty sure, wasn't comfortable. But where a church gets into trouble, where the people of God get in trouble, is where we forget that we're saved by grace. Or we think that it's not a big deal. Neither one of those are good approaches because we are saved by grace. We are sinners in desperately need of a savior. And I am terribly sorry if you've never learned how to do this. I want to apologize for every pastor in every church who's seemed like they are more interested in judging you than helping you, trying to condemn you and make you feel bad rather than help you be set free by the gospel and power of Jesus Christ. We're just people trying to figure it out. But we'll never apologize for the scriptures. We'll never apologize for what they say. Because we believe, and I believe, and, and I know, it has the power to set you free. You can walk away mad, or you can embrace it. Almost done. But I know my ministry approach is very different. And I know balancing mercy and judgment and trying to figure out how all that works together. And, and maybe you didn't grow up in an environment where people talked about things like that. But the reason why I can do that, to be completely honest, because I'm a broken sinner who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And hopefully, I'm still praying about it, pray for me. I want to share some things with you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you want to come to that one. To kind of really help you know, because Christ really can set you free. I mean, he really can. So come to him. Come as you are, but don't stay there. If you diminish sin, you diminish Jesus. You diminish the need for Jesus, and you diminish the only way people can be set free from it. So next week, bring a friend. We're going to talk about sexual morality. And how I want you to hear it is this. Come as you are, but don't stay there. Hear it as, you're not going to scare me, I promise. But we're going to help you get out of it. And hopefully we'll give some practical ways on how you, me, we can stay out of it, get out of it, or never get in it. I think I covered everybody. Stay out of it, get out of it, or never get in it. If you're younger, choose the never get in approach. So much better. But we'll talk about that next week. So this week, Will you pray? Will you pray for yourself? Will you pray for those that you know? Will you pray for, for others? Because next week we want to help people. Sexual morality is a way and, and an ability to control and hold on to people. So can you pray for the power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit to set people free next week? 
Will you pray with me now? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the powerful name of Jesus. There are some people just stuck in sin, and, and Lord, we pray for them, and we ask that they turn their life over to you. But we know that you are willing, if we confess our sins, if we confess our need, you are faithful and will redeem us from that. Father, I pray for all those who need healing, who need you, Jesus. I pray for those who haven't experienced a church that has their arms open wide, willing to embrace, willing to acknowledge their absolute mess and love them anyways. But point them to Jesus, point them to you to help them get out of it. Lord, we know you are in the, still in the business of life transformation. We know you are in the business of redeeming and setting people free. Lord, we hear about it all the time and we are so thankful for that. But Father, when we're in that darkness, when we're held captive, we don't think there's a way out. Father, will you call them? Will you call them out of that grave? Will you call them out of that sin? Will you draw them close to you, Father, please? Father, as we walk through this for a couple more weeks, Lord, help us experience your grace. Help us experience your forgiveness. Father, show us how to live for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.